0: Stay tuned for Inside KCYX.
1: Good morning and welcome to Inside KCYX. I'm your host, Marty Derlin. KZYX General Manager, and with me today, broadcasting from the Ron O'Brien Studios in Philo, California, is Victor Palomino, KZYX Public Affairs Director and Bilingual Reporter. Good morning, Victor.
0: Good morning, Marty. Thanks for being here. My
1: pleasure. Inside KZYX airs on the first and third Mondays of every month, and it's dedicated to illuminating what's going on behind the scenes at KZYX. We also update you on important station events, programming, and so on. So today, we'll feature an exit interview with Sally Kane, the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. She's stepping down from her position as of January 1st, after a decade of leading the organization And uh, Victor is a member of the NFCB Board of Directors elected this year by the membership of the organization, Mm -hmm. and we'll also discuss his experience on that board and look ahead to the organization's future. But first, here's a brief rundown of what's going on right here at KZYX. The third annual KZYX online holiday auction wrapped up on Sunday, and it brought in Nearly ten thousand dollars, which will go toward the building fund. Thanks to Board Vice President Renee Vineyard for initiating and producing this event, and thanks to everyone who uh, promoted it and let it uh, let everyone know uh, online and on the air how this event was unfolding. Um. And I'd just like to mention that we, we thank all the people who contributed mm-hmm. items to the auction. And it has it steadily gone up. I think the first year made about $6,000. The second year, last year, about 8000 And this year, about $10,000. So yep. thanks let's just keep that growing. Yeah. It's a great event. And, and thanks so much to everyone who mm-hmm. made that happen. So... Um, perhaps you'd like to be a member of the kzyx board of directors and help steer the station for the next few years if so listen for information about the upcoming kzyx board elections that'll happen in the spring of 2024 there are five terms coming to an end including renee vineyard's term she represents district one she lives in redwood valley and three at-large positions. Renee has said she will run again, and so may Zochelle Martinez and Angelica Limon, who were recently appointed to the board and who fulfill a long-held aspiration to have Latino representation on the board of directors. Uh, Kate Stornetta also holds an 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 at-large seat And she has said she will step down. She has served as the treasurer, where her experience as an accountant and bookkeeper and just kind of knowledgeable, all-around knowledgeable person, particularly about nonprofit accounting, all of that has served us well. She's also been the chair of the Capital Fund Task Force, which has raised nearly $700,000 toward the building project. So uh, we will miss her. Please watch and listen for news about that. Members do elect the board of KZYX, and um, so we need your participation. In other news, Cal Fire's Mike Duggan reports that a new generator at the Cold Spring st- site has been installed, and we shouldn't have any more signal downtime, barring um, maintenance on Fridays, which may or may not interrupt our programming and if it does, hopefully it will be very, very minimal. brief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Knock, knock. <laughs> um, so I haven't been here for about, well, two weeks, actually, ten days. I was on a trip to Oregon. But, Victor, you've been here. I don't think we've had any signal
0: issues. No, it's been we? minimal. Yeah. yeah. So we have our constant signal and the way it should be.
1: Yes, just just <laughs> the way it should be, 24-7. Okay, so let's talk about another project of KZYX, the intern program. Mm-hmm. Uh Victor wrote a successful grant to the Community Foundation of Mendocino County to support our intern program uh, that involves mostly high school students around mm-hmm. the county. So Victor, you are you've been formalizing what KZYX has done in the past. You're also building and enhancing the intern program and in its curriculum involving students in different parts of the county, I think it's a more intentional effort than we've had in the past.
0: It it is, and I've been visiting some schools and continuing the efforts to bring those uh, youth voices to the radio and and start to include them. And the idea is to think about the future of radio, the future of the station. We, it is not only for KCYX, many community radio stations have like a demographic gap between the people that are already doing the shows and the new generations. And that's because listening habits, technology, and, and younger people don't have the same close relationship that our generation have with radio. So right now we have a group from the Anderson Valley that is coming here twice a week to uh, do their internship. It includes producing PSAs and promos and also creating their own programming. Um, uh, visit the Ukiah High, and where we, we're also going to do a collaboration with their MESA program. And the two uh, schools in the coast, one in Point, Point Arena and uh, Mendocino High, uh, they already have radio programs. So I'm going to go there once a month and work with those students to help them, uh, with their content. And the Mendocino High already, they produce the student, uh, radio power hour that is today, Friday at 7 p.m. So they already have a full power FM radio station and doing great things. So we're just going to help them to have more tools, maybe to create their own newsrooms and to create their own, uh, uh programming, so that's gonna be really exciting, and hopefully we'll create uh programmers that are gonna be sitting here in k c y x continuing the tradition of uh, community radio
1: yeah, that'll be great and just notable former interns, one would be Eddie Hale, mm-hmm. who came to us through the uh through mendocino college and um Max Colfax, who of course does his little uh module or uh program every week
0: this day in history. this <laughs> in history, and and that's one of the goals of this program. Is like we're starting with high schools right now, and as we continue, we're creating a curriculum, and we wanted to connect it with the Mendocino College because they have that uh, engineering, and sound engineering program, and if we can start giving people the uh, the tools and the the practice, the real time practice for this program. So I think it's gonna be is gonna be a, a good part for the people and the youth people in Mendocino County to stay here and find uh, careers in media.
1: Yeah. Come on be be here at KCYX. <laughs> yes. Be very excited. Okay, thanks. And more to come on that as it develops, I think we'll we'll try to cover what you've been doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, on our little rundown here, listen for seasonal specials that are coming up in the next two weeks. And uh, please give to KZYX's end-of-year campaign. If you've got funds to give, give them to KZYX or other worthy nonprofits or and other worthy nonprofits not to taxes, which seem to go to the... Defense departments to the gazillion dollar, um, weapons. Well, anyway, I won't go there. All right, stop. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) enough said, thank you to everyone who's already contributed to the end of year campaign. Um, and unless you tell us, you want to direct any funds you send to the building fund. And of course we're always glad to receive those gifts. Um, your end of year donations will go toward operating funds that's kind of the default so if you want to contribute to the building fund please do designate that but thanks to everyone who makes KZYX and KZYZ possible it's really really an important um, uh, very
0: important yeah very important and we had a uh, we almost made our goal for our um, on air plans drive our fall Place drive but we thank everybody that i mean we know that it's a hard year with the economy but you keep us in, in your in your minds and in your wallets yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and we thank you for that we certainly do
1: all right so now let's listen to the interview with sally kane this interview was conducted on wednesday via zoom and here we go I'm talking to Sally Kane, she's in her final days as the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, uh, in a position that she served for 10 years, approximately, or is it
2: exactly, Sally? It's exactly. (laughs) (laughs) On January 1st, it'll be 10 years. Mm -hmm. All right, well,
1: congratulations. That's a long term. Someone did
2: say to me that these national jobs, you live in dog years. (laughs) I think that's (laughs) probably true. Although um, this has been one of the most rewarding chapters in my working life. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Well, that's great because I know it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been exactly a piece of cake.
2: No, and I think there are all kinds of things we could talk about in that regard, but chief among them is that nonprofits are unwieldy structures, and uh, especially at a leadership level, you're called in um, these kinds of smaller settings, small organizations, and you all know this at KZYX, but um, staffers are called to pay attention to the smallest detail and the largest big picture thought. And that's quite a stretch to go back and forth. And in community radio in particular, the constituency of the volunteers and the listeners slash members have a great deal of ownership of the organizations, right? And that's our great strength. And it's also a major leadership challenge at times because, you know, decision making processes have to move along. And as a leader, sometimes it's your call to make it, but it's in a culture that says, tell me all about that or i don't like how you did this so i i don't feel alone in that and it's certainly actually easier to be an international organization leader than it is to be a station leader on all those points
1: and you've done you've done both, both. you should know <laughs> yeah 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 it's a you you're constantly at the where the rubber meets the road at a at a station it's a real test of how to make small d democracy um work um in real time
2: well i and- often have said over the 10 years of you know having many opportunities to advocate for community radio and represent our constituencies in policy talks and you know larger trade kind of industry level conversations i've often said that community radio is different in the public media um, realm, it's the same listener sponsor thing, but you have all kinds of volunteers for one. And I said, think of it this way. It's a community radio station is basically a community development organization that happens to do radio. It's not the reverse. Whereas a larger kind of conventional public radio station is radio and at times engages in community development. you see what I mean? Whereas Mm -hmm. community stations, what comes first is community, the local community and how you interface with that.
1: Yeah, and as you point out, it's both an exciting and exhilarating, or it can be uh, exhilarating and um, just a burden.
2: It's all the vagaries of um, human, you know behavior, and and you see that a lot in these grassroots organizations. A high degree of ownership of it also empowers people to um, really have very strong feedback, strong opinions, strong things that they think um, people need to take action on. Because we, in my opinion, oversell that in community radio. Oh, you own it. You're the member. You own it. Well, not everybody wants to own a radio station. A lot of people just want to hear good radio and at the end of the day someone also has to run the station and that's not um you know a listener member they're not running it so there's some mixed roles that go on there i think and particularly like in in my tenure came on in 2014 that's the beginning of the whole trump era phenomena right and we watched all this polarization accelerate to just unprecedented levels and um, that really characterized a lot of what kind of voice I honed as a leader of this federation had to do with a larger question I think that was going on across the country which was what's happened to rural America help us understand it and as it turns out it you know I just happened to be the only one who's led in FCB, who's lived a rural existence my whole life, so I came in as a leader at the same time that there was just this spotlight on what is it to be a rural American, what is going on, <laughs> and and so all of a sudden people really wanted to know that. And as it turns out, 64% of our membership are rural stations. That's also a demographic shift over time that NFCB has had. So it was this kind of confluence of I'm a rural person, renewed interest nationally in rural America, and then the majority of our membership is all rural. So that ended up being quite an emphasis for me.
1: Uh huh. What form did that take, do you feel?
2: Well, you know, Part of of what ended up happening was it gave me entree into a lot more um, uh, system-level conversations because people wanted to pick my brain. Mm -hmm. Well, I see you have the biggest concentration of rural stations in any member organization in public media. What are you hearing from them? What are you seeing? What what kind of conditions are they working in? Um, You know... How do we? And then, of course, it it um it segued into oh we don't have enough news, local news. The papers are all going away now. These are news deserts. What do you think about that? And you know, so oftentimes I would be drawing on my own lived experience and articulating that. Plus, I went out and visited a lot of stations over the last 10 years. Something I'm really proud of is getting out in the field. And part of that is because that's where I connect with my passion for it, is in the actual stations and the making of radio. Um, So I never wanted to lose that connection. And in fact, I've maintained a volunteer slot on my own radio station for these last 10 years because of that as well. But there's nothing like showing up. Especially in these remote, remote rural areas, and being able to say, "I'm here. I'm from NFCB. I'm here to spend the afternoon with your board or work with your staff," and it means so much to people that mm-hmm. you show up.
1: Well, and that you actually get it. Yeah, uh, you, they don't have to start explaining to you why their station is different from a from an urban station, because right. you know,
2: yeah. And they're easily impressed if you have the right footwear. <laughs> <laughs> Boots, yeah. Yes. I'm
1: um, wearing mine today. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the other thing I think that people don't get about rural, there are many, many facets of of rural stations they don't get, but part of it is the scale of what you're working with mm-hmm. and financial. Um, among, among perhaps the most important that, I mean, trying to explain to NPR, um, why we can't afford, uh, you know, $30,000 for two of their programs this year, for example, to another station that wouldn't be that much to us. It's, it's a job. (laughs) It's a position. It's, It's whether you can balance the budget or not, it's doing without. And I know that there is, there's certainly, and especially after your term at NFCB, there is a better understanding at the national level at CPB and NPR about rural stations.
2: I think you made a really excellent point about um, the funding model makes assumptions that hold up fairly well in urban settings and particularly affluent urban settings. But the funding model is imperiled in rural scenarios and in impoverished communities because it says, oh, you need more money, go get more members. Well, how do you do that in sparsely populated areas? Or, oh, you need more money, go get more. How do you do that in communities um, like on indigenous lands where, uh, you know, 60 percent unemployment can be is a standard reality people are living with. You know, the legacies of this colonial model and genocide and slavery, those are all playing out very much in our communities. And what is heartbreaking to me is when we uh, we just try and define it as, oh, you're successful because you can go out and get hundred new donors who are all capable of you know making all this kind of uh, larger extra additional gifts and that means you're a successful station but what about the station that has provided local news that has saved people's lives that has shown up for one another through thick and thin that rallies when a person in the community dies
1: stations that are doing their duties They couldn't do them better, but they're only they're fewer than 10,000 people
2: under their signal and half of them are in poverty. Accomplishing that work is is highly successful. So one of the things that I have found myself saying time and time again is taking issue with the fact that right out of the gate, when it comes to rural and minority communities, we we literally define them in deficit based language. So in other words, under resourced, underfunded, underpopulated, undereducated. Immediately, that's how we define it. So we use the language of marginalization before we ever, of course, we don't need to put that label on it. <laughs> We've already no,
1: defined it, it. Right. And often that's what could be further from the truth, really. Some of that just doesn't, doesn't jive with reality.
2: No, and it it doesn't encompass a full index of what wealth really is, which is also people's time and their their talent and um, their their love for something, you know. So there's a lot of richness in quote poorer communities that is never really part of the m- metric, you know. So and and also I think it's just a bias too that we we never look at. You know, an affluent urban in in, um, neighborhood, and say, "Oh, this these people are over resourced and over educated." (laughs) One could argue that they are, but we never say that. But we look at other communities and especially rural towns and say, "Oh, these guys are under resourced," and in fact, they're providing the same fabric of structure, social structures that any other city is providing they're just having to do it across larger distance with less people to support it so it's very challenging
1: it is it is what what did you feel were the important successes that you had with with rural stations and and bridging that communication gap with the the funders in dc and, and elsewhere?
2: Well, I did have the opportunity to serve on um, three different advisory panels reviewing the community service grant program. And each time, you know, I gained more skills about doing policy work and, and being able to be a helpful member of that kind of group process. And, and no one person makes anything at a group setting, but I think I learned how to bring compelling, inspiring stories of the courage and the success and the effort that rural stations were making in their communities. And um, it had an effect on people who were making policy. It had an effect on people's understanding of how integral all stations are in a public media system, all sizes the fact that we cover the entire country as an industry means that there are stations that are existing on all kinds of different scale. And it was my great pleasure to bring that fact out (laughs) so that people understood that. And I think my approach the whole time has been um, very much grounded in the fact that My parents helped found a community station when I was a child, and it was a big part of my family's life. And that radio station has been a friend to my family for decades, and it is my friend living in this community where I grew up. And I would carry that every day into this work because I knew what an important resource a community radio station is to people like me who live in rural America. And so my whole approach in the work that I did was to lift up the importance of the people who do this work across the country and to never diminish their effort and their success. And so I always took that voice or tried to saying, you have these airwaves, you have these connections in your community, you have this lived experience, you have a place you call home, that matters to you. Those are all powerful things. They create a sense of belonging. Belonging helps people create a sense of purpose in their life. And when you have those two things, life is meaningful. And I kind of think that's why we're here. So that was a lot of how I approached this work.
1: Mm. Were you able to build some bridges that hadn't been built before?
2: Yes. And I think that really started happening when we were able to get do some strategic initiatives in the field that specifically, I'm thinking of the community counts initiative. And it was you know stations who wanted to stretch or reach or go further in their learning and didn't have access to the professional development stuff that they needed. So we created that with this grant. We brought those resources to the stations, but the most magic thing that happened was that they built bridges with one another wasn't really what we were doing as much as their connection. And so Mm -hmm. what what I do feel I've had an impact in um, within community radio is making sure that other stations know they're not alone, that they don't have to go it alone, that they have colleagues and peers, we've always taken great care to have a culture of generosity about sharing knowledge and information, and civility and respect for one another. So that has been um, a big influence in terms of stations coming together and building regional networks or strengthening existing regional networks or stations gaining um, enough insights into what their aspirational goals were that they said, you know what, I'm gonna go for this digital transformation program that's happening on the national scene. And I'm gonna see if we can do that here at our station. And you started to see tiny stations winning more awards and putting themselves out there to be part of larger cohorts and trainings and going on trips to meet other people at other stations and just learning that they are not just a community radio station existing in a little town somewhere that they're part of a community of community radio stations that's where the collective impact happens and that's where people help give each other energy in what can otherwise be a really pretty draining endeavor. Hmm.
1: Now, one thing you did that um, fairly early on, I think, in your tenure is you changed the, the way the board of NFCB is structured. And you uh, used to be that um, the board was elected by the membership. It came out of the membership. People would put themselves forward or be nominated or both, and um, you, you changed that um, system. Why did you do it, and what was the result?
2: Well, I think to set the context, I was very clearly openly hired to be a change agent and to either um, wind NFCB down and shut it down or find a place for it in a rapidly changing environment. The digital revolution was at its height. The industry was turned upside down and inside out. We were searching for what is meaningful service to stations? How are they operating? They were integrating websites and you know, streams and all kinds of stuff that they were doing. There was huge pressure for everybody to start a local news department, but there was no funding for any of that. So it was a time of a lot of angst and a lot of change. And and so I took my role on uh, with a very clear understanding that I was there to make some change. And um, in reading the bylaws of the Federation, what I saw was that the governance structure was quite cumbersome and it came out of a a 1970s setting when there was no internet for one thing um, so we had a very cumbersome way of sitting in those big rooms and you've been there and everybody would get their little piece of paper and hold it up and you, you and i mean it, it's romantic to kind of think yeah that's how we did it but you know electronic ballots are how people deal with that stuff now so we needed to be nimble if we were going to crawl out of Um, the financial hole we were in and assert services that were going to bring the members um, loyalty and and desire to invest in us back. And um, one of the things that I saw was that our board was always general managers of stations, predominantly white. And um, people who had big, busy jobs and didn't have a whole lot of time to put into being on a national board. So we didn't have a pretty broad definitely in digital media forms. And I thought that our board could benefit from those that kind of perspective. And it was definitely I read the bylaws and and, um I scrapped them and rewrote them completely and brought them forward to the board and explained what I was thinking there with six appointed board members and three elected by the membership, keeping the spirit of, you know members having an active voice and representation always on the board of nfcb but not holding nfcb to that being the only kind of board member right and um and then uh, once the board said yeah this looks good we you know i honed the mission vision values tried to bring stuff up to speed tried to clean up language in the bylaws that made things cumbersome like you know mail this letter to this person when you could send an email that kind of thing um and then uh, I took it forward to the membership and I mailed to every one of them. These are the bylaws. This is what I want to change. These are the changed ones that I'm suggesting. And I'm looking for your support. And we got overwhelming vote of support from members saying, yeah, do what you need to do. We want to see this organization succeed. And so overnight we had now six seats that we could appoint. And um, I brought on a filmmaker, a journalist, uh, a lawyer, um, a a producer, people who had a broad spectrum of uh, experience in media, in multimedia world. And overnight, we also became a majority-minority board. And that was a very strong statement and demonstration of our commitment in n f c b to diversity equity, and inclusion, yeah that became
1: it's it's always been a factor since I've been involved in community radio. It's always been there, but it became a real a real issue during your during your tenure at n f c b yeah so and I, you did some leadership uh, around DEI. Maybe
2: you could talk a bit about that. Well, it started with the organizational structure changes um, and the, the change in governance and actually having our board reflect the pluralist society that we live in and the demographics, racial demographics that we live in. Um, that was step one. Um, And then the other other things we did, it was just simple, really looking at values and defining them and not just claiming them as performative things. But what does inclusion actually mean in how we function? Things like um, the federal holidays, we we put a floating holiday in there, change the policy so that if, you know, uh, indigenous person on our board or on our staff, was not going to celebrate Columbus Day, they could choose to celebrate something else. Um, So those are simple ways that your policy then reflects, we're not going down the same road here. And um, so I tried to go to work on our backyard first and clean it up, and then share that out with stations and say, yes, these are steps you can take, and this is why it matters. Uh, and encouraging stations to really take a look at that. And, you know, one of the things that's been tricky is how does that apply in rural America, where these are mostly majority white communities? Well, there's mm-hmm. reasons why. There's old laws on the books. There's, you know, uh, the legacy of slavery and, um, and uh genocide and immigration issues and all those kinds of things, but um, I just wanted to elevate the whole issue because I want to live in a world that is more fair and more kind. You live your, your everyday life at it in different ways, but when you come at it from a, as a leader, and come right out of the gate acknowledging that there's a lot of change going on and that people all handle it in different ways at different schedules, et cetera. But that um, moving forward through it is the best way to maintain a sense of agency as a human being. Hardly anyone ever argues with that. Mm -hmm. And, And at the national scene, I'm a bit removed from needing to please everyone. Because when I was a station manager, somebody could walk in off the street and make demands of me that were completely inappropriate, but I had to live in community with them. Or they were a big donor to the station. And so you find yourself twisted in all kinds of ways. Whereas here um, on the national scene, my job was to lift up an entire industry that I 100% believed in. And nobody was asking me to please them personally. They were just asking me to help.
1: Please talk about your role as an advocate for community radio, uh, particularly in in the Washington um, environment, where, like it or not, that's where that's where our money lives, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, of course, Congress appropriating funds for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and then the policies that come out of CPB. You know, and there 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 have been some rural initiatives and and some understanding that rural stations don't have the monetary opportunities that many urban stations have and all that. But still there are some big policy issues. And many of the stations at NFCB don't don't have um they don't receive the community service grant from the corporation for public broadcasting they're they're out there on their own trying to to make it run without any help from from uh, the federal government which you know it really provides some some security and a bit of a bit of a hammock for for uh, particularly for smaller stations who do qualify but Uh, still have have big challenges. Mm -hmm. How did you feel? Did you feel you had allies, or were you sometimes the lone voice out there?
2: So I want to be thoughtful about how I answer all of that. And I think that a first thing I can say is I have learned so much in 10 years about diplomacy and clear communication. And that has benefited me in multiple arenas of my life, but I'm very grateful for that. It's been quite a learning experience. And and I the main lesson that I have really learned in terms of advocacy is um, one I always knew, which is you yourself have to know why you care about something, or you will never be an effective advocate. You have to do that internal self-assessment and stay very tuned into that. Otherwise, you 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 don't have any charisma or mojo about what you're saying, and you need that to be an effective advocate. So, I, I you know, that was affirmed for me. What I didn't know and what I learned a lot about was how hard policy is. You know, I am a person that just like, well, let's go that way. Well, let's do this well that'll work fine i'm on board you don't have to ask me twice but policy is very different because there are unintended consequences there are intended consequences that go awry there are unknown variables that come in and roost over the whole thing that you couldn't have any possible way of knowing there's deep machiavellian politics involved in a lot of it too in any Uh, policy discussions, let's face it, it's about money and power and influence when it comes down to it. So that was a whole universe to step into and understand. And, you know, through it all, I will say that I think public media in general really has some of the kindest, most thoughtful people on the (laughs) in the country involved in it. I mean, across the board, whether you're a C-suite person um, making huge decisions at a multi-million dollar organization like NPR or a tiny little station somewhere, generally speaking, people who get into public media are very thoughtful people and and really value reason. And so that made it an interesting collegial thing to be, you know, it's pretty good. It wasn't like school board politics, you know? Um, So I learned that about policy and the give and take of it. And and I had to, you know, I had to take blowback from particular constituencies and say, but this isn't fair and this isn't right. And I'd have to say, I know that, and we can only do this incremental change right now because of X, Y, Z. And that was hard because I wished I could do more, but I learned to be patient and I learned sometimes that the incremental change could lead to larger change and I learned that listening to what someone said when you don't agree with them is a very important thing to do and not just formulating your defensive response so I learned a lot of things that that I really benefited from um, and frankly we've really put a lot more money into small stations in the last 10 years through some of those policy changes and they seem small but they add up to millions of dollars and i'm proud of that it makes a difference you know Um, what i will say though about public media is that by an act of congress the public telecommunications act 75 percent of the federal investment goes to tv right out of the gate and 25 yeah. goes to radio. I had no idea. My world was radio. I thought public media was public radio. I didn't have a TV growing up. You know, I had no idea that radio was this, you know, big phenomena in terms of audience and content and the brand of it and how much people love it. And it was only 25% of the overall funding. So. There are systemic things that set you up when you're specifically a radio advocate that you're already having to punch above your weight mm-hmm. um, big time. Yeah, a little and, bit of a stepchild. too. Yep. Yeah, and, and when you add to that being a community station versus a conventional public radio station with paid staff doing most of it versus volunteers, it's very easy to um allow decision makers and policy makers to marginalize that because they don't relate to the scale of it so it was always my job to push back on that and say no that's not accurate or let me share this story with you about what happened here you know that kind of thing and I found that most of my colleagues just didn't know and they would be blown away by the things they would hear And they would take a lot of interest in small radio stations and the work they do. And these are people who travel across the country themselves. So they would listen, you know, and they'd say, I heard this little radio station out in South Dakota. It was incredible. You know, I'm like, yeah, we know that station, you know. So there were a lot of opportunities in in that regard. Um, But I think you're dealing with many layers. You're dealing with uh, the inequity of our Um, whole society in terms of what we want to invest in. I mean, this is an infrastructure with a direct link to the health of our democracy. This is about the free flow of information. It's the First Amendment. You know, Uh, it's big stuff. And we are, as a nation, contributing next to nothing to help. A dollar
1: or something, a dollar per person. 25 cents of it goes to radio right and Um, they're yeah so layers yeah we had the attempt again to zero out public broadcasting from the federal budget Um, and
2: now Ted Cruz is trying to whittle away even being able to use the word diversity you know these diversity statements that that stations. CPB was saying, if you're going to be in our grant program, you need to have a diversity statement. Well, now there's all that blowback and it's shifting to a community representation statement. And in an effort to be more clear about what the station's really signing up to reflect, and that I am, I fully understand, but there's a larger of um, uh, fascist kind of energy that is running roughshod over some of the most sacred tenets of our democracy and how it functions. And I think these are very perilous times. And that's also why I think it's so important to keep uh, community radio going, because I've always viewed it as a social movement. I think it's it's goes well beyond media. Mm
1: -hmm. I agree. I couldn't agree more,
2: and it's an art form when you do it well, and you know it's for me that's that's where my passion lies. You know, art and open space. <laughs> and uh I think radio in in its uh, finest form is art, performance art. And it frees the spirit when, when people can express themselves in creative ways everything benefits their body benefits their relationships benefit their communities benefit their families benefit i hate to ask anything more after that
1: (laughs) i i guess just thank you sally for all your hard work and all your advocacy and what you were able to do in covid during covid for our, our stations was really so great. Thank you. Make such a difference to so many stations. And I think it's still an ongoing difference. Yeah. Um, and just that because you had a seat at the table and you you had people's respect, you were able to really push things forward and help us all.
2: well, it's been a great honor. and I love hearing that it actually helped. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm going to be reflecting about a lot of it and not sure what the next move will be. And I would be surprised if it didn't have some connectivity to community radio just because it's been such a constant in my life. But um, I thank you for, for that, Marty. And um, I'm really grateful to all of the people in community radio for, you know, basically allowing me this opportunity.
1: Okay, so that was the interview with Sally Kane, retiring CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and uh, Victor Palomino will be attending the last board meeting that will feature Sally later on this month.
0: Yeah, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be part of the board for the last month of uh, Sally, and you know, she's really impressive in the work that she has done for the last 10 years for community radios and also what she mentioned of uh, diversifying their board. uh, I think we're nine people on the board and it's a very diverse, different representations of of, uh, cultures, ideas, and like she was saying, uh, different kinds of media. So I I feel very honored of being in, in that group of people. We have amazing conversations not only about uh, what the organization has to do for so uh, the language that we use when we're creating all these materials and and, and making sure that everybody feels represented and nobody feels excluded to all these conversations and and there's something really interesting that she said that and is that sense of belonging I think that um, community radio has that power especially for local Rural communities where we become uh, your voice, we become your soundtrack, and I think the work that we're doing here to include more Spanish language and and, and, and other communities, it helps that you know, is it, as as a person is an immigrant to this country and they speak English as a second language, uh, turning the radio and hear something in your language or a message, a PSA in your language, you have that sense of belonging, you know, you say like really important. So that's She's, uh, she's 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 uh, gonna leave a big shoes to feel when she departs. Uh, we have our last meeting in a couple of weeks, and uh, when I got into the board, I was part into the end of the hiring process for the new CEO. That I was really impressed with the work of the NFBC their staff. Uh, it's a small staff they work remotely but they are they're amazing there they they send information daily to our radio stations and okay. the li- list surf that they have is is a source for all kinds of questions to radio stations r- small rural radio stations big city radio stations we all have all these questions Questions about how to conduct what we do, and and having that le- that list and that communication, where you can share that information with other stations and compare and and get feedback and get tips, is is a great service for every community station.
1: Yeah, it really is. And and as she was saying, there's a culture of generosity around sharing the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the knowledge and the ideas and uh, so why should we reinvent the wheel here when many stations have already grappled with the exact same Same. Mm -hmm. uh, it may play out in a different way but it's the same issue so it's, it's a really it's a great organization I think it's I forgot how old it is but 50 60 years old it's it's old mm-hmm. it's an old uh, long time organization it's gone through many ups and downs <laughs> and I think Sally's tenure reign has been a really positive thing. Um so we have only 5 minutes left if you have a question for us we'd be glad to try to answer it 707-895-2448 is the number to call here at the Ron O'Brien studio in the last waning minutes of Inside KZyx this morning. Um, yes, yeah, Sally um, is a very good speaker, and mm. as she always reminds me sort of of a TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because even if she's talking policy or wonking away, somehow she she tries to get to a, it's inspiring. a spiritual place or a place of... of Of, uh, I don't know, completeness. Yeah.
0: And she said a couple of things in in that interview that are very, don't really think about. And it's like, uh, we are funded by uh, public funds and and, and dealing with that and and having to, like, being diplomatic and learning how to navigate all those things. I think it's a very important thing that uh, the NFBC does. And they, and, 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 it, and at the end, it helps us because we depend on, on those funds and especially rural radio stations, small that we don't have the capacity to reach out to big donors or, uh, 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 what a city will have. We have to, we relied on you, our listeners. So all the help that we can get from these organizations for small stations is, is a big help. And the other thing that I like of what she said is the considering radio as an art. And I totally agree with that. We are a performing art. We have. Uh, um, sometimes I'm listening to the shows that our programmers uh, put together every week, and there's some very good quality, and they're they're keeping the tradition of. Radio as an art, you know, as a communicating, as as performing a little bit what you're having in your mind, even if it's the, the music shows that you're curating together, you know, you're putting on that list of music that you want to give to uh, your listeners, or if it's a really good, or a really good public affairs shows can be considered like a. Oh, great. absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A so. piece of art. And and of course we have some hosts you know who just kind of walked off the street or the farm <laughs> and and are just very very good on mm-hmm. the air and um you know you tune it in and you feel carried somewhere you're you're you don't need to worry about uh anyone stumbling around or not uh paying attention or not really uh, asking the right questions or answering the questions because the person the hostess is, is uh, you yeah. know extremely good it and the, you find it on these stations across the country saying you know you yeah. and and it's uh i think she was a conduit for you know talking to people in washington who when they think of public radio do not think of kcyx no. <laughs> they're thinking of npr NPRs all the way and yeah the and the fancy stations and, yeah. in dc wta etc exactly. and um Anyway, but the,
0: the vast majority is small station like ours. That, and, and there is something I have always considered our stations as talent incubators, because we are the ones who reach out to the community. We found those people, like you said, that might have a work that is completely a job that is completely different of what they do. But they have they come here to the station and they discover this talent for radio mm-hmm. and that expand their their life, their views and, and it helps the community.
1: Absolutely. It's great to be an audience for that kind of person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, we're about to the last minute here.
0: Yeah. And I uh, want to remind you, we have a new show coming up and it's a music show on Fridays. And uh, I think this time has been curated by uh, our staff, but it's called Into the Light. And on Fridays, we also have uh, rotations with uh, cream and the red Super I think, are the names of those shows. So it's uh, one of the new additions to the uh, Friday mornings here in KCYX. So we're getting. Thank you for listening. Continue listening to KCYX. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Victor. And we are getting ready to go back. And remember, you still have time to donate to KCYX. It's the end of the year. If you do a contribution, that's, uh, it's always tax deductible. So you can go to our website, kcyx.org, and do your end of the year contribution. If you already did it, thank you. You can also send a check to PO Box 1 in Philo, California. And those are the best ways that you can let us know that you support California. And those are the best ways that you can let us know that you support us you <laughs>